of this chapter. And of course it is a chapter that proceeds to uh, instruct us and tell us about the great flood. And how God's plan was to destroy the world. And it was because he saw the wickedness of man was great in all the earth. Well, before you get to those details, before you get to those particular verses, you come to some verses that have caused difficulties to many people. And it revolves around who the sons of God are, as we read in verse 2. They're still here within the confines of the genealogy of Adam. Indeed, if you look at the words of the opening of the chapter, there's been great multiplication of mankind uh, throughout the earth and the human race. Genesis 5 concentrates on the sons of Adam and the descent of the line of Seth, that godly line that was to lead to the Messiah. Chapter 6, however, it considers the daughters born unto man. But what does this sons of God mean? Verse 2, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they choose. There's great controversy here. Let me give you, first of all, the popular view. And the popular view is that it describes the godly line of Seth and that they turn round to marry even those daughters of the ungodly Cain. That's the popular view. But an immediate problem with that is that the word for man in the words of verse 2 as well as is used in verse 1 is a word that is a generic term. In other words... That simply means it's a word for humanity in general. Again in verse 2, the daughters of men is generic. And so there's no justification there for restricting the daughters of men only to be of the line of Cain. Daughters of men include both the Sethites as well as the Cainites. It's a generic term. The following, we could say, are reasons why the popular view doesn't stand up. Maybe this is what you thought or considered. And maybe it's what you heard before if you've ever sat under the preaching of Genesis chapter 6 in the opening verses. But there are problems. Problems being that while Cain and Lamech were ungodly, and we've looked at that, some of those in between those two were not ungodly. In fact, we've considered that some of their names uh, include the name of El, the name of God. And it would give, give us an indication that not all within the line of Cain were ungodly as he was. Secondly, Seth and Enosh, they were godly. They were men of God. But you know the same principle applies also to those between them, those two men. Not all were godly. Not all of the Sethites called on the name of the Lord. As we read in the previous verse. If you look at chapter 5 verse 30. And Lamech lived after he begot Noah 595 years 
and begot sons and daughters. That tells us something. That tells us that Noah had brothers and sisters. But we have to presume, men and women, that those brothers and sisters were ungodly because they would have been destroyed in the flood. There was only the immediate family of Noah that actually went in to the ark. And so there's an example where they're in the line of Seth, but they're not all godly. They don't all call upon the name of the Lord. And thirdly, if this view is correct, then it does beg the question, why did godly men intermarry with ungodly women? You see what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, is a moral law that was written in the hearts of believers even back in the beginning. Being ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? Young people, take it to heart. Don't you think you know better than God? By befriending those who are not saved. Because if you're sitting in the prayer meeting tonight as a young person, you're in that age where you're starting to think of my life's partner. And God says, don't be unequally yoked. Every courtship potentially, may not be of course, but potentially can end up in a a wedding and a marriage. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. How do you prevent the unequal yoke? You don't go out with them in the first place. But there's many, many professing young people saved and they think they know better than God and they've gone down this road. That seems to have been a moral law written in the hearts of believers. Remember Abraham or even Isaac and he didn't want his son to marry the daughters of Cain or Canaanites. As he saw it. And Abram was the same. He sent out his servant. He wouldn't take a, a wife of the promised land of the Canaanites there. And so he sent his servant away back to his father's house. To find a suitable bride for Isaac. Rebecca. Principle written down in the New Testament. Yet it is written in the heart of the believers in the old. So the sons of God. As considered, even by Jewish writers, are we'll understand correctly if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Not just by going by the popular view. What are the Scriptures? Well, the word that is used consistently of angels, both good angels and bad, is the word that's found in this verse. And that's the word that is found right throughout the word of God. You turn over to Job. Job chapter 1. Remember, the book of Job is one of the oldest books. It may be in the middle of the Old Testament, yet it is uh, at the beginning of time. It's one of the oldest books. Job 1 verse 6 says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, 
came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. There's how it's described. Exactly as it is in the words of verse 2 of Genesis chapter 6. And of course we know that the devil was an angel of light before he fell. Before he was put out of heaven. Look also at chapter 2 verse 1. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. You have exactly the same term. Turn over to chapter 38. Chapter 38 of Job will tell you that these sons of God were also present when God made the earth. Look at the words of verse 4. And Job has been spoken to by the Lord here. And coming near to the end of the book. It says in verse 4, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures whereof if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut up the sea with doors when it break forth? As if it had issued out of the womb. There are rhetorical questions given to Job about the very creation. God who of course set the foundations of the universe. And he says when the morning stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy. There's the same term. We have also verses which speak of the sons of the Almighty. Or sons of the Most High. Most of them you will find in the book of Psalms. So the Old Testament uses the little word sons of God to mean angels. Everywhere else. And so if that is not the case with Genesis 6 and the words of verse 2. Then it would be an exception to the rule. And that's not good interpretation of the scriptures. I don't know whether I've ever thought about the angels much. It is a study in its own. Angels in the Bible are always referred to in the masculine. They're never feminine. They're never even neutral. They're masculine. That wouldn't go down well with a woman's lib these days. But that's how it is. Daniel refers to the leading angel of Gabriel, probably the best known. One who announced the Saviour's birth. But he's mentioned there, he's called in Daniel chapter 9. The name Gabriel even means man of God. Other angels were also considered to be men. You take your mind again to Abraham. You remember how Abraham was at his tent and he saw three coming. And the New Testament tells us that he entertained angels unawares. He considered them to be men. And one of whom was the Old Testament appearance of Christ. How do we know? Because he stood before the Lord making intercession for Lot and for the righteous that were in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because the Lord told him he was on his way to judge those cities. He stood before the Lord. When those same angels went to Sodom, Lot perceived them to be men. 
So did the Sodomites. As they stood outside his door. And they wanted to have their way with those men. So there are other examples where men are, are masculine angels. The angels are always men, are always masculine in the scriptures. After the resurrection, not even, even in the Old Testament only, after the resurrection of the Savior, two of the Gospels describe the angels at the tomb as men. As are the two who appeared after the ascension of the Lord from Mount Olivet. Acts chapter 1 and the words of verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly, that is the disciples, toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Two men in white apparel. There it is again. So Genesis chapter 6, describing the sons of God, marrying the daughters of men, makes sense if we consider them to be angels. It doesn't really make sense if it was just one group of human beings marrying another group. It doesn't flow. But it does if you consider them to be angels. That the angels of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. I want, before I go on a little, to bring to your attention two New Testament references. And again, these are references, if, they, if these sons of God aren't angels, there becomes a problem. Second Peter, chapter 2. Let's just look at this. Two, these two verses or references are closely linked. First of all, Second Peter chapter 2, the words of verse 4. <clears throat> says, For of God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them with an overthrow, making them an ensemble unto those that are, that after should live ungodly. And deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Now chapter 2 of Peter and those verses that we have read refers to a group of sinning angels. Their sin is so grievous that they weren't allowed to roam freely around the earth. But they were cast into hell. They're bound there in darkness until awaits the great final judgment. It also indicates to us in those verses their sinning occurred not long before the flood. Because Noah is mentioned in the words there of verse 5. And also there's a connection with the sin of Sodom. So you learn all of those things in those few verses. 
Now you come to Jude. Jude chapter, Jude verse 6 and 7. And Jude writes, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day, even as Solomon and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Second Peter provides the timing. Second Peter gives us the detail of what happened to these angels. The verses in Jude, however, they explain more about what the sin that they were entailed with. They didn't stay within their boundaries. The angels which kept not their first estate They didn't stay within their demonic realm. Indeed, they left their own habitation, and that is consistent with entering into the realm of humanity by their intermarriage. And as Peter, they're chained in darkness until the day of judgment. That's really describing the same event. The nature of their sin is just as wicked as that of the men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you notice the little co-joining word between verse 6 and 7. Even chains until darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah. They're just as wicked as them. And what they did was commit acts of sexual immorality. We know that. That's how it is described in verse 7. And the word there that is used is where we get our English word pornography. They gave themselves over to going after strange flesh. In other words, that unnatural desire as Paul is found writing about in Romans chapter 1. You know the old liberal and the ignorant of the scriptures today, they will say, ah, she, you're talking about the Old Testament scriptures. No, we're not. Sodomy is described in the New Testament. And Romans 1 and verse 27, those verses before and after are some of the most vilest and darkest catalogue of sins that you'll read in all the scriptures. And Sodomy's there. They gave themselves over to those unnatural desires. And these angels, in verse 6, they sought what was unnatural flesh to them, i.e. the daughters of men. They went beyond their habitation. I think, and you bring those two verses particularly together, that settles it for me. As what the sons of men here, or sons of God here, are described as. The question, of course, then follows on if we come this far. Why did they do that? 
Why did they, these angels go beyond their habitation? Why did they go beyond their demonic realm and marry the daughters of men? We already know, of course, that angels can appear in the form of men. We've considered that already. That's not a problem. But why? Why marry the daughters of men? And the answer to that, men and women, is, it brings us back again to Genesis 3, verse 15. And the great promise of God that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And Satan's attack from that moment on was upon womanhood. Because from a woman, and the thing is, he didn't know which woman. He thought it might be uh, through um, Eve. And so Cain rose up against his brother Abel. He thought it was Abel the promise, but he didn't know which woman would bring forth the seed that would destroy him. And so there's an attack against the woman. And if the devil could prevent the arrival of this seed, then he was eternally safe. He could eternally do what he does. So his aim now was to send the angelic agencies to this earth in order to corrupt the woman. By taking human form and marrying them. And if womanhood was corrupted by their angelic mates, then the seed could not arrive. Because he's perfect. God could not tolerate this abomination. And so he judged them immediately. As we know from Second Peter 2 and Jude. Immediately. They're chained. In everlasting darkness and hell. They weren't free to roam the earth. But in the next verses. He also announces his judgment. On man as well. The Lord said. Verse 3. My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. That's a, a little phrase, a part of a verse that you can I can take in the gospel very easily. But men and women, there is the judgment on mankind, and what we come across is a hundred and twenty years. God could not abide his spirit remaining with man forever living under this angelic contamination. And because man is also flesh, that means, that's why it is concluded there, that's, that means that there's death. He's liable to die. And then there's the mention of the 120 years. That 120 years cannot mean that that was the length of man's life from this time forward. Simply because there are those who live beyond 120 years after this. But the meaning is that the 120 years from the time of the intermarrying of the sons of God to the daughters of men 120 years forward would be when God would wipe out most of mankind with the flood. 
It was the length of time that Noah, that we've already read about in Second Peter, that preacher of righteousness, was to warn men and women of the coming judgment. And while he preached and while he warned, he built the ark by faith. The outcome of the intermarrying, verse 4. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came on unto the daughters of men, they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. There's two words there, giants and mighty men. They're used to describe the offspring used to describe those that were born in those days as a result of the intermarrying and those days before the flood. But God would start afresh with an uncorrupted line of people. And so the flood wiped those giants off the earth. You ever think of that? He wiped the giants off the earth. Because God started afresh with Noah. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's the same as you and I just. We find grace with God. It's not the other way around. It's not because Noah was any different than any one of us. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And God saved them. God set them apart. And that was the new start. But the flood wiped out the giants. There might be someone who would object to what I've just said. And you would do so by thinking of one particular passage. That passage being the twelve spies. The ten of those spies came back and they talked about the walled cities and they talked about the giants in the land to discourage the people. And men and women, that was a lie. Because when Joshua goes into the promised land, there's never any mention of giants. Nowhere. And we know how God severely judged the multitude, the nation, because they listened to that majority report. They didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the majority report. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Right there at Kadesh Barnea. They're right on the border of entering in. Instead, they turned back in unbelief and they had to wander for 40 years, one for each day that the spies explored that land. And none of the adults entered into the promised land apart from Joshua and Caleb who had a different spirit. Why? Because they believed in a mighty God. They didn't see the giants. They didn't because they weren't there. They didn't see the walled cities. They saw the power and the might of God. 
They believed that none could overcome the Lord God and no obstacle was too great. And tonight we praise God for the one who came that he might take on the principalities and powers and he might subdue them through the blood of his cross. For the one who was promised as that seed of the woman to bruise the head of the Satan and to purchase victory for his redeemed came in obedience to the Father's will and he finished the work. There's a wounded-headed adversary tonight. And there's a victorious, living, reigning Christ. And unto Christ has been committed all judgment. And one day, all his enemies, he will subdue. And they shall be made his footstool. Isn't it good to be on the victory side? Isn't it good to know that come that great judgment day where these fallen angels that are chained in in eternal darkness will receive their final judgment of the lake of fire. Isn't it good to know that that judgment day we will have an advocate with the Father and the judge of all the earth is none other than our Redeemer and our Saviour. Who will welcome us into his kingdom prepared from before the foundation of the world. You have read that verse before. I trust it has been a little help to you tonight to understand who are the sons of God, why they came, and the outcome of that in their intermarrying, and thereby God judging the world as a great flood. But Noah found grace in his eyes. May the Lord bless his word even to our hearts tonight.